Hi, I'm Allie Roark. I'm Wilson Gall. And you're listening to Fledgling Theories, a podcast where usually once a month we pick a new piece of bird research and chat about it for about a half an hour. You can find the article we talk about today and all the info about our podcast on our website, fledglingtheories.podbean.com. If you like the podcast and you want to support us by sending us, you know, a euro or a dollar or two a month, uh, we really appreciate it. It helps us make this happen, and that can be found at patreon.com slash fledglingtheories. You can also follow us on Twitter at Fledgecast. So I think we've a bit behind. It's been a few months since we posted the last podcast. It definitely, sure has. <laughs> the last one was definitely pre-COVID-19 lockdown. Yep. Uh, a different world. <laughs> a different world, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, we're doing okay here in Ireland. We've had travel restrictions, so for a long time we couldn't go more than two kilometers, which is, you know, about a mile, basically, from home. And then that went up, and we could go five kilometers, and then just recently we've it's gone up again so we can now travel 20 kilometers from our house but it still kind of feels like we're hunkered down here still working from home and that's been hard to motivate to do a podcast for some reason <laughs> yeah absolutely so we hope you guys are all safe and well out there and uh weathering the lockdown in your respective regions well well the study we're looking at today is a bird that uh is not distance restricted at all it takes long journeys every year <laughs> that's true um, another North American sort of neotropical migrant bird. And this study is focusing on the wintering grounds that are in South America. Yeah, so this is about the Canada warbler. And the, the study is called Contrasting the Suitability of Shade, Coffee, Agriculture, and Native Forest as Overwinter Habitat for the Canada Warbler in the Colombian Andes. And that's by um, Gonzalez, Wilson, Bailey, and Hobson. And it just came out. This is a brand new one, 2020. So we've been thinking for a while of trying to delve into some of the research about coffee plantations and specifically about whether there are better or worse options. Because you see things, um, you know, on coffee, you see labels like rainforest friendly and shade grown and yep. all these sorts of things. And um, I don't really know much about the evidence behind how well any of those things work or whether any of them are sort of helpful. So no, this is my first foray into this evidence also. Yeah, so this is one article. It's certainly not the only article, and, and we might try to find some more at other times, but this is trying to study um, shade-grown coffee versus native forest and see, you know, what's the difference between them in terms of the habitat quality for this Canada warbler. Right. So I guess my, my bare bones understanding of the coffee agriculture situation is that there are shade grown coffee plantations and full sun coffee plantations. And in shade grown plantations, the coffee plants come up underneath a canopy of relatively intact forest. They basically clear out the undergrowth and put in coffee plants. And in the full sun, they cut down all the forest to grow the coffee plants in full sun. And so supposedly shade coffee is uh, better for birds because it keeps some of that canopy habitat intact. Yeah, there's just some more big big trees still there that aren't the coffee trees. And so there's a, a wider sort of range of types of plants. And also it is more similar to a forest because it still has big trees in it. And this study is in the Andes in Colombia 
And according to what they say in the introduction here, the plantations where they were studying, the shade coffee plantations, have up to like over 40% shade cover um, in a lot of areas. So m almost half of the area is in shade, not in sun. So the study focused on the Canada warbler, which is this little neotropical migrant, as we mentioned, that, that breeds in the northern forests in the northern USA and Canada. And then spends its winters in northern South America. So it does this really long distance migration every year. And the North American Breeding Bird Survey, which has been going on since 1970, it gives us all kinds of good data about the status of breeding birds in North America, has found that there's been a 60% decline in the breeding population of the Canada warbler over the last 50 years. Yeah, that's big. That's a, a big and fast decline. It's, yeah, it's really big. It's precipitous. <laughs> and so the question is, why is it declining so fast? And, oh boy, how can we stop it? <laughs> and I think that, you know, the suspicion is that a large part of why it's declining is loss of habitat in the wintering grounds in South America. So over that same period of time, a huge amount of the wintering ground habitat, the forest, has been lost. It's been cut down, converted to coffee plantations or, or various other transformations. Right. So there's a suspicion that that habitat loss is driving a lot of the population decline. Maybe not all of the population decline, but yeah, that's sure. probably I mean, a big chunk. So we don't know for sure that the transformation of the wintering habitat is what's causing this population decline because there has been some transformation of breeding habitat for us as well. But... Um, in terms of investigating what's happening to this species and how we can conserve the species, it makes sense to investigate what's happening in the wintering habitat. And this study cites a previous study that found that there were bigger biodiversity losses in tropical forests like these when coffee switched from shade-grown to sun-grown, so sort of to this more intensive system. That was a bigger change in biodiversity than the change from native forest to a shade-grown coffee plantation. Yeah, and we should note that that's not just a single study that they cited, that's a meta-analysis. So that's a study that looked at a bunch of studies that had been done and found that this result was consistent across all those studies. So there might be some reason to believe that actually shade-grown, <coughs> excuse me, shade-grown coffee is almost as good as native forest and definitely a good bit better than the sun coffee plantations. And so that's kind of what this study is looking at. They didn't even look at the sun coffee plantations in this study. They were just comparing the shade-grown plantations to native forests. So sort of the best possible coffee plantation setup to an untouched native forest and trying to look at, at how much worse the shade-grown coffee was than the native forest for this bird. Yeah. So how'd they investigate this, Wilson? What were they looking for? So trying to figure out if uh, habitat is good for a bird is a little tricky. So they took three different approaches here. Number one, they just looked at how many birds they found in the f native forest and the coffee. Right. That's kind of the most intuitive, obvious approach. Yeah. Are the birds there? Do they prefer to be in one spot more than the other? Yeah. So they, they stood there and they counted them. And then you, you find maybe more birds in one spot than another. But that doesn't tell you actually how good the habitat is for, for the birds, because it's possible 
that it could be what we sometimes call an ecological trap, which is an area that maybe looks good to a species, they're attracted to go there, but then when they get there, it's actually kind of bad. So what I always think of in my mind with this one is when we lived in Wisconsin, every year there was an American robin who built a nest on the corner of this bush, like right sticking out kind of almost into the walkway where we walked past our door. And every year the robin built the nest there and then the nest got knocked off that bush either by wind or by some person bumping it with their elbow or something and yeah. all the eggs got smashed. I and that, that robin never managed to raise kids there. So that's kind of an ecological trap. For some reason, this robin thought, hey, that looks like a good place to build a nest and chose to go there. But then in reality, it was really bad. And once it had sort of committed, once it had set up that nest, something came along that destroyed it. Right. So it's possible that Canada warblers look at the shade grown coffee plantation and think like, oh, yeah, that's a spot where I want to be. But then it has negative consequences. They don't fuel up adequately for migration and then they die. Okay. So for that reason, you can't just count how many birds are there and assume that it's better where there are more birds. Right. So the next thing they did is they estimated the apparent survival from year to year of birds in these different habitats. So they were catching birds in a mist net and putting a little band on them and then releasing them. And then if they caught that bird the next year, they could be sure that bird had survived for a full year. It had migrated north and then come back south. And so if it survives a year, that's, that's success, definitely, for a small little bird like yep, this. absolutely. And so they tried to estimate, are birds more likely to survive for the next year if they spent the winter in a coffee area versus a native forest area? Yep. That has some difficulties in interpretation, too, that we'll talk about later, maybe. And then, so the third thing they did, and the one that I personally find most convincing, is they measured the change in the body condition. So they were misnetting these birds, and they basically just weighed them. So they're just kind of looking at how heavy is the bird, how much, you know, reserves of fat does it have on it, Right, because the idea behind... Uh, spending time on your wintering grounds is that you're essentially refueling for migration because these birds make a really long trek every year and they need to have extra reserves, some fat stores in order to make it to their breeding grounds. So the best habitat would be a place where a bird can spend the whole winter there and at the end of the winter has put on a lot of weight and is has a lot of fat and energy reserves so that it's ready to do that long migration. Yep. And so you might find that birds put on less weight in one area than another, probably because there's less food there or they're, they're spending more time avoiding predators or something. Yep. So those are their three things. They're just counted how many birds there are. They estimated the apparent survival from year to year. And then they weighed the birds and, and estimated their body condition. And then they looked at all three of these factors to try to figure out which of these habitats was sort of the best overall wintering habitat for these birds. And I found the result surprising. Yeah, definitely. Which is that there was really not much difference between the shade coffee and the native forest. Yeah. So for all of those measures, basically, so for the for the body condition, like how much weight the birds had, no difference that they could find in, yeah. their, in their models. Really no difference at all. There was some... Maybe some slight differences in whether you were likely to find, like there were some differences between how likely you were to find males and females, 
between the two habitats. Like, you were slightly more likely to find females in coffee than forest habitats. Slightly more likely to find males in forest than coffee. But not by much. And the confidence intervals were overlapping, so, you know, could have just been random. Not a really strong signal there. There was also a, a slight suggestion in the, in the survival probabilities that maybe birds survive better if they were in forest, but it was slight and, um, you know, certainly not a big difference if the difference is, is there at all. So they didn't find the, the effect of shade coffee that they were expecting to find, but they did find some variation in survival and body condition based on weather events that they experienced. Yeah, based on El Nino. So they had, I think this, they had five years in this study. And in, in at least one of those years, there was an El Nino event. And this would matter to the birds because it really, the El Nino really changes the precipitation patterns over the winter in this area. And basically when they get less precipitation in this area, there ends up being less food for these birds. So these birds are little insectivores. They're eating little insects basically off of the trees for the most part. So with less precipitation, maybe you get less insects and then you get less food. So the El Nino years are drier. And what these authors expected is that during the El Nino year, which is a harder year anyway, that the difference between the forest and the coffee would be even bigger. Whatever difference differences there normally, that sort of gets exaggerated in these hard El Nino years. Right, but that's not what they found. It turns out that the overall habitat conditions of both forest and coffee were bad in El Nino years, and they were bad, they changed by the same amount, roughly. Yeah, they were both bad, and one was not really better or worse than the other. Yeah. So the message there is sort of that the, the overall weather in the whole region influenced the survival and the body condition of these birds much more than the differences between the habitats within the region. Yep. And that's consistent with what other studies have found about El Nino events too. So that's probably a pretty uh, real phenomenon yep. and not just a one-off year thing. So to just, to really briefly summarize it, they looked at the native forest and the shade grown coffee plantations and basically found no difference between them in terms of wintering habitat quality for this Canada warbler. Yeah, which is great news for coffee lovers, I guess. <laughs> well, so that's, I mean, that's the question. What, they're, what we're interested in here is figuring out how good are these shade-grown coffee plantations compared to native forest? Probably we're interested in sort of for biodiversity as a whole or yeah. for a lot of things. Absolutely. And this study is looking at this one bird and so on these, you know, three coffee plantations or whatever. You right. can't study everything all at once. You have to pick and choose and narrow your focus until you have a scope that is reasonable for a research team. Yeah, so in some ways, it's sort of, I don't know, frustrating or, or unsatisfying when your question is really about sort of the, how much have you destroyed when you switch from a native forest to a, a shade-grown coffee plantation. This is a really small piece of that, and it kind mm -hmm. of feels like a very unsatisfying way to answer that question. You get this little piece of information, you say, well, for this one species, they're not very different. Does that actually tell you all that much about how different those forests are? Right. And I feel like this is always a, a struggle 
because there really is no way to measure or quantify an entire ecosystem. Yep. It just, you just can't do it. It doesn't exist. You have to start by going into details and you basically go to, to tiny specific details and you study those and then you have to build up a picture by looking at lots of little different details. We don't have a way to, to start at the top and sort of do this whole broad picture and, and get the entire health of, of a forest. And there's always kind of the hope that, well, if it's good for this bird, it'll be good for some other things too. And that's true right. to an extent. Yeah, like can we generalize this to all other neotropical warblers that use this habitat or whatever, similar species in the same genus, etc. Yeah, the most reasonable extensions are to say, well, if it's good for this migratory insectivore during the winter, then it's probably good for other very similar migratory insectivores. Yeah. That's not much of a leap. It's a much bigger leap to say, well, uh, this shade-grown coffee would still be good for fruit-eating birds that live in the tropics all year long. Right. Because that's a very different type of requirement. So you're always sort of thinking, like, how, how much does this tell us about other things other than what was in this study? And they, they talk in the discussion about the fact that the, the change from native to shade-grown forest is probably a much more severe impact for the year-round native birds there than for the migrants. And that could be because of what they're eating. Um, you know, I would imagine there might be less fruit for the frugivores in the shade-grown coffee. Mm, yep. And of course, this hasn't looked at all at, at you know, anything other than birds. So you have all the, the questions about the other types of biodiversity, insects and arthropods and the plants and all that. Absolutely. You probably get a little bit of that. I mean, the fact that the Canada warblers were able to find enough food and maintain body condition in these shade-grown coffee means that there's at least probably still a high abundance of some kind of invertebrate or insect. Doesn't mean it's the same species as the native forest, but it's not like a, it's not like a, a barren desert in these shade coffee plantations. Yeah, and then aside from generalizability about the organisms that are using the coffee plantation as habitat, the other question is whether this the coffee plantations they studied here are generalizable to all similar coffee plantations in the region. You know, are these three, why did they choose these three sites? Are they different in some way from other uh, shade coffee areas? Are yeah, they comparable to them? You know, it, it's... In fact, they mentioned in the discussion that they suspect these plantations that they use are some of the best out there. The, the cover, the canopy cover and the shade cover is quite high and that there are probably an, a lot of coffee plantations that are called shade coffee plantations that don't have as many trees and as much shade as these. Right, you can imagine that. I don't know anything about the, the standards for what constitutes a shade coffee plantation, but there might be a fair bit of variability um, in that things that are designated in that category. But, I mean, clearly, if, if this is sort of on the, on the better end, this is sort of a best case shade coffee plantation, it looks pretty good it compared good. to the native forest, at least for these migratory warblers here. Yep, absolutely. Okay, here's a question for you, Wilson. So, do you buy apparent survival as a good proxy for habitat suitability? Because there yeah, are so, issues with, with the ideas behind apparent survival, and it relies on 
catching the bird in the same spot the next year. Yeah, so the apparent survival, this is when they put the band on and then they, if they catch the same bird with that band on the next year, they know it's survived for a year. Right. And then, now as you can imagine, this is, it's pretty rare to catch a bird multiple times mm -hmm. over multiple years because, you know, you're setting up these nets, you're, it's not like you're chasing the bird. You just put up the net and then you hope the bird flies into it. Right. It's and basically how it works. It re requires the bird to come back to essentially the same site where it was caught the previous year. I don't know much about site fidelity in Canada warblers, whether they, you know, come back to the same 100 meter radius where they were previously overwintering or not. So they initially put bands on 330 birds during this study. Okay. And the number that they recaptured, uh, a, so they captured, they recaptured 42 birds of those 330. So it's a really quite small number. 33 of those they captured one year later, and there were just nine birds that they caught in two subsequent years, like multiple okay. years. So, yeah, so they, you don't have a ton of data for this, and then they basically used some statistical models to try to account for things that they didn't see. Um, and so there, there could be a couple reasons that you don't recatch a bird. So either it died, it didn't survive the year. That's one possibility. And that's really what you're interested in. Right. Or it survived, but it didn't come back to the same place. Yeah. And that's much trickier because from your data, it's going to look exactly the same as if the bird died. You mm -hmm. just, you put a band on, then you never see the bird again. <laughs> right. And so the question is how you like, how you disentangle those two. And I think they attempted to do that a little bit because there were a very few cases, like one or two birds, I think, where they banded a bird at one of their field sites. Remember, they had three different coffee plantations they were working at. So they yep. banded a bird at one of those plantations, and then a year later caught it at a different plantation. So that lets you estimate a little bit the chance that a bird will survive but not return to its same location. But when you're talking about you know, one or two data points, right. your estimate of how likely that is is pretty low. And then you just don't get any information about the birds that survived but come back to some other place where you don't have any nets set up. So, yeah, so, so the apparent survival, it's, it's definitely not as convincing a measure to me as the body mass. Yeah, I agree that but, the body condition seems like the most compelling piece of evidence here. Yeah, but on the other hand, you know, the body condition is not what actually matters right. for the habitat quality. The, the birds surviving, at least getting up to the breeding grounds, is what matters. So, so the survival probability is the more meaningful measure, if you can measure it. Yeah. The body mass is a much easier thing to measure. I trust that their measurements are correct, but the question is, what does that actually mean you know, for the for the bird in any practical sense. So, so that's kind of a trade-off. You've got one thing that you can measure very well, but you don't really know practically how important it is versus the survival that is obviously very important, but that you can't measure very well at all. Yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, I think they did, you know, the, the best they could do. You measure the multiple different things. You try to interpret them all. One thing that's easy is that all of the things they measured, with a few small exceptions in this study, all pretty much showed the same result. Yep. There's not really any difference between these habitats. Yeah, which is a good clue that you're picking up, uh, that you're getting at the actual signal in the, the world. 
Yeah, if you'd found that, you know, body condition is higher in one habitat, but survival probability is lower in that habitat, um, and there's, you know, you know, the number of birds showed you a different thing also, then you would start to doubt all of it more, and you say, geez, am I just, yeah, am I really measuring it? So the fact right. that the multiple different measures more or less agree gives you a little more confidence. Um, but yeah, it's hard with that apparent survival. I don't, I don't know enough about that kind of thing. So the other, the other thing that could help you interpret that, which I don't know and they didn't really talk about, is if there were previous studies that had tried to estimate really well the probability of a Canada warbler switching locations from one year to the next. It would take a different study design. So in this study design, they had three locations mm -hmm. and they put a lot of effort into each of those three locations. Right. But you could set up a study design where you have many more different locations. Maybe you spend a little less effort at each one or something. And, you know, the goal of that study might be to figure out how likely is it that a, a warbler would move from one location to another over the course of a year, you know, come back to a different location. Yeah, sure. If you already had that information from a previous study and you knew that Canada warblers were very reliably returning to the same wintering locations, then that would give you more confidence in the apparent survival probability. I will say that their, their recapture rate surprised me in this, like 330, banding 330 birds initially and then recatching 40 of those is a Pretty great <laughs> recapture rate. Usually yeah. banding studies have a way lower recapture rate than that. Yeah, so, I'm, so maybe the Canada warblers really are coming back to the same winter locations, but I just, I just have no idea. Yeah, I don't either. But hard, hard to interpret, I think. I almost, yeah, I almost kind of prefer just the number of birds over the recapture thing, because mm. at least you have more data. I mean, you know, of course, there's always the possibility of that ecological trap. There could be lots of birds in a bad area. Sure. But at least I think it's a little easier to estimate the number of birds, and then you just have to figure out whether that matters. You don't have to wonder whether you've actually estimated it correctly. Yeah, and especially if you have birds, if you feel like you have pre-existing knowledge that the native forest is not an ecological trap, then examining the native forest that's next to the coffee plantation and looking at the differences between the two of them when they have a, a good area available, I don't know, seems like it, it lowers the chances of the of catching the whole thing as an ecological trap. Does that make sense? I did not say that very well. Well, no, I, I think that, I mean, one problem could be is you know, what if the coffee is worse, but because it's close to native forest, they, they land there anyway. Then you could see no difference between the coffee and the native forest in terms of the number of birds there. But in fact, they're getting a lot less benefit from being in the coffee. That I think you could still easily have an, an ecological trap type situation. But there. wouldn't they just move to the native forest? Not necessarily. Um, so one of the reasons that we didn't really talk about it, but they... They looked at the proportion of males and females in the different habitats. And they thought that could be an indicator of habitat quality because the males, even during the non-breeding season on the wintering grounds, tend to be a little bit territorial or aggressive. And so right. by oh, and yeah. large, the higher quality habitats will probably have more males who are kind of kicking the females out. Yeah, and the females will end up in the lower quality habitats. Yeah, so, right. so you could have the possibility where all the birds kind of land in the forest 
which is the good habitat, the males kick the females out and the females end up in a lower quality habitat nearby. Sure, that makes sense. So there is still, still some competition elements for habitat happening even on the non-breeding grounds. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, so that's kind of that's kind of this study, a surprising result to me anyway, and I think kind of a surprising result to the study authors from what it sounded like. Yep. Um, just one piece of information, you know, but I think maybe we'll try to find a few more coffee articles uh, to do on the podcast over the over a while. We'll sort of see if we can start to build up a little bit of a picture about overall what do what does coffee plantation do in terms of bird habitat. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those questions that's uh, has some direct implications for how we live our lives in terms of what coffee we buy and things like that. So it's a so it's an interesting question for anybody who cares about birds and likes to drink coffee. So if you want to check out this study yourself, you can find it on our website, fledglingtheories.podbean.com. Um, it was published in the Condor Ornithological Applications in 2020. And once again, it's called Contrasting the Suitability of Shade Coffee Agriculture and Native Forest as Overwinter Habitat for Canada Warbler in the Columbian Andes by Gonzalez et al. Thanks for listening. The funding for my PhD position comes from a project funded by Science Foundation Ireland. I'm at University College Dublin in the Ecological Modeling Group of John Yearsley. If you want to find out more about our research in the Ecological Modeling Group, you can go to www.ucd.ie/ecomodel.